Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Everybody, today on the program, we have Corey Seemiller and... Uh, many of you uh, listeners will know her name for the prolific work, The Output. She's writing about leadership. She's writing about uh, competencies. She's writing about Gen Z. I just had my students, Corey, listen to your TED Talk, and they had so many cool things to say about that TED Talk. So I'm excited to discuss Gen Z for sure, because I think that's an important, timely conversation for us to have. But Corey's an associate professor at Wright State University, and she is in the department, let's see if I can get this right, Corey, of Leadership Studies and Education and Organizations. Is that close? That is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Corey, maybe introduce yourself, and then we will jump into, maybe we start with Gen Z, and then maybe we start with Gen Z and leadership. Any insights that you're kind of coming to when it comes to that conversation? Does that sound okay? Yeah, sounds great. Good, good. Absolutely. Well, I'm really happy to be here. It's a great chance to, to always catch up with you, Scott. So um, thanks for inviting me. And uh, it's funny, I will, I will start with a little bit of a story. So how Scott and I met. So we actually met really more formally at an ILA because alphabetically, Shankman and C. Miller go next to each other. So our little author signing booths were next to each other. Yes. And I remember that year we kept saying, why are we off on the side? Nobody's coming and talking to us. <laughs> Nobody was coming to the book signing. So we stood and talked for like two hours. And since then, I've, you know, I've been able to work with Scott on so many things. So it's been a lot of fun. But uh, I'm currently at Wright State. I'm starting my sixth year there, uh, which has been a lot of fun. But prior to that, I worked in student affairs. Most of that career was in um, leadership development, leadership programs, social justice, service learning, community service, those kinds of things. Um, and so I really consider myself a, a pracademic. I, I come from this idea that everything I want to study, everything I want to teach is has to have some type of a practical application. Because frankly, working in student affairs, we're just too busy to, to you know, kind of pontificate sometimes. Sometimes you're just like moving and shaking. And, and I yeah. wanted to make sure that I was so, be in that kind of space. So, but now I am full-time faculty and that's been a lot of fun that I can spend a little bit more time researching and providing materials and resources for people in leadership development, but even outside of leadership, uh, just to be able to work better with uh, college age students. That's sort of my, my thematic piece in the middle of everything I do is studying college age students whether that's their, their leadership development or even as I look at Generation Z being our current traditional and even some non-traditional age college students. Sure. So, so let's, start at, let's start at Gen Z. Uh, what are some observations? What is some of the work that you've done tell you about, about Gen Z? Because I think, I think, well, at least the reflections of my students, they were, they, they, they were consistently writing things like, it's so nice to hear you know, because I think at times we, we generations, I, I'm a Gen Xer. So I just, I just remember distinctly people, you know, begging on Gen X that we were lost and 
all Kurt Cobain or something like that, right? Just listening to grunge <laughs> right. all day long and really not much else going on. Uh, so so I, I definitely know how that feels. And I think uh, millennials and I think Gen Z, big, significant part of the population, correct? I mean, just a, mm-hmm. a virtual tsunami of people coming into the workforce. Tell me your thoughts. Well, one of the things I am accused of is being a generational optimist. Because you know what? You, you look under the news, you you know, Google anything around any generation, and it's just these horrible headlines come up about how generations are doing these horrible things. I remember this one that came up that said, millennials are killing the napkin industry because they're so <laughs> environmental. And I thought, really? I mean, is that really the, most, the biggest headline you need? What about, like... Millennials are, are, you know, advancing volunteerism at rates we haven't seen in decades. Like, yeah. Why aren't we writing stories like that? So when I got into this generational work, I wanted to have a positive spin on it, especially as an educator. I mean, if I, if I start to look doom and gloom on our, our students, then what am I doing in this job? I need to actually think about how I can leverage their potential and help them reach their goals. That's, that's just not even just my job. That's my passion. So, yeah. so when people watch my TED talk, they're, they're always fascinated with the idea that I talk about this generation in a positive light and that <laughs> it's about them doing good things. And certainly we want to be mindful of, you know, there's certain factors about every generation that we have to be aware of. And, and, you know, there's certainly ones about Generation Z, but if we do nothing but focus on those, I don't think it's entirely productive. And so that's really kind of where I come from with this, this generational research. But some of the things that have been interesting that, that I've found, I mean, we've, we've studied gen, Generation Z across the spectrum, everything from dating to learning to civic engagement wow. and communication patterns. So it's been fun to kind of see these little pieces of Gen Z, but then put them all together in what we call a peer personality. And your, and your peer personality is, a, is basically the description of your generational cohort based on the current events and the context within which you're growing up. So the things that happen between about age 14 and 24 have more of a significant effect on you than any other time in your life. Huh. So if those are those... Those things that happen during that time period, they end up staying with you. You look back at people who were that age during the depression and they still had tendencies to, you know, keep things or, um, you know, look for things and store things in ways that they were doing during the depression. But people in other age groups not didn't have that the same way. Corey, in my in in Fort in Fort Dodge, Iowa, Grandma Kirkaby, my grandmother in Fort Dodge, (laughs) she had a lot of canned goods. (laughs) There were a lot of canned goods, right? Yeah. Well, in every, even little things like tinfoil, you know, like, you're like, why are you keeping tinfoil? And it's because the mentality that was, you know, that people grew up with is really important. So as we look at something, even like today, as we're looking at 2020 being probably one of the most unique years we've, most of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes. Yes. You know, I, I understand what I'm experiencing. I too am a Gen Xer. So I have it in the context of where I am in my life right now, but I can't possibly imagine what it's like to be a 19-year-old college student trying to figure this stuff out. I, I don't know how I would react. You've got the, you know, you've got the certainly the pandemic and distance learning, but you've got the just the proliferation of technology to begin with. I mean, yeah. you know, they'd say, oh, young people are always on their phones. I'm like, well, I'm always on my phone. And if I were young and I were in college, I'd be on my phone too. So <laughs> It's been, it's been really a, kind of an interesting journey to see how this pure personality continues to be shaped. Yeah. And, and we, usually you can't see the shaping or the significance of the shaping of it until well after. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, studies are just now coming out, longitudinal studies about millennials who experienced 9-11 when they were kids. 
yeah. just now because we're just now figuring some of those things out. So um, it's, it's really just kind of an interesting journey to kind of be alongside for the ride with this young generation as they're experiencing the same things I am but in a very different way and in a very different context. This is such a random example, but I think for instance, something like, like uh, social media, like, uh, Facebook, I, I experience Facebook in such a different way than probably someone who's 18 to 20, who's probably not even on Facebook as I may, as I make that yeah. statement, but, but it's just a completely different existence and how that tool is being used and what the experiences are with that medium. And so what are some themes you're seeing? I liked how you, I liked how you phrased that, Corey. And I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but you said something kind of like, I, I'm, I'm kind of walking along with them and just ob- observing what their experiences are. And so what are some things that are standing out for you about Gen Z that, that are significant, at least indicators right now? Of course, like you said, we, the, the studies, the longitudinal studies can't and haven't been done, but what are you seeing? Well, there's a couple things that I think were kind of relatively interesting to me. And, and I would say this because most of my professional career as a Gen Xer has been with millennial students. Mm. Um, and so everything I have is only to compare my job as an educator to having millennial students. So this idea that we were always going to have, quote, millennials for the eternity. I don't understand why people who think everybody under the age of 35 is a millennial. And so <laughs> that was, was really confusing. It was like, I don't know. But there were a couple things that really stood out as different than millennials. One of those things is the way that Generation Z students prefer to learn. And again, this is, this is like a, these are themes. So it's yeah. not that every single Gen Z student prefers this way, but these totally. are just some trends. And it's this idea of intrapersonal learning. I want to learn on my own. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because um, while we came off of millennials who were very much into collaborative learning, interpersonal learning, I'm going to really like this thing called social learning, which is learning next to each other, but not learning necessarily with each other. Imagine like when you put babies in a sandbox and you call it a play date, not really playing together. They're flinging sand next to each other, right? That's the same kind of concept. Social learning is this idea that we're next to each other, but not necessarily learning with each other. So to me, that was an interesting finding. And I think once we kind of have a chance to retroactively go back and look at the the growth and the immediate, um, how Gen Z responded in both synchronous and asynchronous environments where they had to really do a lot more interpersonal learning, Yeah. Was that really a preference when they didn't have a lot of it, but they wanted it? The grass is always greener. Or after they've done it for a few years, are they thinking, wait a minute, I really actually want to be with people and I want to learn with them. And again, that's not something we're going to know until we're a little bit further out. Yeah. So to me, that was a huge, uh, that was a huge difference to try to understand this generation. I think one of the other things that was really big was this notion of their engagement. I'm, I'm Gen X, just like you. We've been touted as being the most apathetic generation in history. Yeah, um, yeah, you're you and, are you are fitting that mold, and and uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Was, we just was sat also back latchkey and, kids. Like, was that the same thing? Yeah, latchkey kids, we, we, and maybe mom and dad are divorced, and no one's in the house, <laughs> and I got to let myself in, and uh, exactly. So I don't yeah. care about anyone. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go inside. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was, but it's funny because us, you know, us uh, apathetic generation, we sort of grew up and became all the entrepreneurs. So most of the big companies that people, you know, use today have, look at their CEO, they're almost all Gen X exclusively. It's actually kind of funny to see. But, you know, we, you know, when we start looking at 
at Gen Z and, and them, you know, they're not, they're not apathetic at all, nor were millennials, but they were just different. Um, yeah. Millennials were our, our kind of service generation. They were the ones who stepped it up um, and did more volunteerism and community service than we'd seen in a long time. So much so that in the early 2000s, college campuses were scrambling around creating service learning programs and volunteer offices. And because these millennials came to college and said, where am I going to volunteer? I don't want to volunteer. And then we sort of scrambled and created that. Gen Z came and now we're like, why is Gen Z coming to the volunteer office? And why isn't Gen Z going on my alternative spring break trips? Don't they care about these things? Interesting. And the answer is yes, they care. But they're very specific about what they care about and they know what they care about and they want to get involved with a specific issue. So unless that issue is front and center as a program on campus, they're not necessarily flocking to it. You're looking at maybe a high schooler who has been involved in, you know, eradicating plastics from the ocean and been involved in an organization, done trainings, maybe gone to an environmental camp and they come to campus and there's an alternative spring break that has nothing to do with the environment. It's not that they don't want to be involved. They just are really passionate about the environment and they want to find something about that. Yeah. So it's, it's really kind of, it's kind of an interesting, interesting shift. And, and Gen Z with that said, really prefers long-term involvement. They don't want to go and do four hours of volunteer work and then leave and never see an organization. They want to work with an organization for years and make big changes and social impact and, and not necessarily addressing the symptoms. I always say they'd rather build the well than deliver the water. Yeah. Um, and we need people to deliver the water. We do because people yeah. won't have it if we don't. But at the same time, we have a generation that their, their commitment and their passion is on building the well. How do we, especially as educators, tap into that or help leverage that or help get them connected to resources? So those two for me were two of the biggest kind of shifts, especially as they're positioned against um, trends that we saw with millennial college students. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. The, the, the notion of, you know, I'm passionate about topics, but I'm going to be passionate about what I'm passionate about. And if the thing you're offering me isn't that, then thanks, but, you know, it may not be what I want to spend my time on. And in some ways, yeah. I wonder if that, I'm speaking out loud here, so I'm just pontificating, but does that, does that mirror some of, some of our other trends across society where I can kind of have exactly what I want when I want it right now? And that's where I'm going to spend my energy and that's where I'm going to invest my time. And I just, I wonder, right? I mean, the fact, Mm -hmm. back to where we, this is turning into a Gen X uh, reminiscing. I don't know (laughs) that there were, there were even study, study abroad programs at the University of Minnesota. There were, I'm sure, but no one that I was around was going on them. Mm -hmm. And, and then that kind of started ramping up, but now it seems to be getting more and more hyper-focused or at least people have the ability to hyper-focus however they would like to. Does that make sense or is that? Yeah, no, you're spot on. I mean, if you think about it, you know, again, kind of dating us here a little bit is, you know, when I was in college, we didn't have the internet yet. Yeah, and it was just I couldn't get on. online. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what to get involved with. No. So if I saw a flyer hanging in my residence hall that said, come do, you know, to this program about this topic, I didn't really have much of an experience with other topics. And I said, okay. So it was kind of an introduction to my passions where a lot of these young people, you know, have these passions that are just so deep. I mean, I have an 11 year old who is so passionate about 
um, preventing euthanasia with the cat population. She has watched, I mean, hundreds of hours of videos. She's doing this trap, neuter, and release training this weekend. We're fostering kittens. She's 11 years old. Yeah. yeah. And she knows what her passion is. And she yeah. can customize that, like what you're talking about, based on the fact that there are so many resources available to her to be involved with that issue well before she even comes to college. Yeah. So it's this assumption that, that students are showing up in college and like, I don't really know what I care about. That's the case for some of them, but it's not nearly as much as it was when we didn't have access to resources to expose us to the issues that we might be care, you know, we might care about. Well, and so how do you think this translates for Gen Z when it comes to the topic of leadership? What, uh, what observations or just hypotheses have you come up with that uh, stand out for you? Well, you know, we've seen this on a number of our studies and as well as other studies as well, uh, is that... Gen Z is really not a huge fan of formal leadership positions. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm a qualitative researcher, so uh, there's some things I can't even say on air as to hmm. how they feel about formal leadership positions, and specifically formal leaders. Um, but they do use some words like, basically anybody in a leadership position is corrupt, greedy, unethical, um, uses their power for no good, doesn't know my needs. And that's come up generally, that's come up in terms of just politics. But this idea that Leaders, leaders are somehow not something that I want to be. Wow. I don't want to be that because I don't want to be affiliated with those bad things. So instead of this idea of I can be something different as a leader, that's not necessarily front and center in their minds. It's I don't want to do this because I don't want to be in this situation or this context or be perceived as such. So what they're doing, and I talk a little bit about it in my TED Talk, is they're working right around the system. They believe in many ways, many of them believe the system is broken. Whatever the system is that is elevating certain people to power and others not, that it is, um, it is marginalizing, it is demeaning, it is inequitable, and they come at it from every lens, social justice, environment, um, you name it. And they say, in some ways, I just don't want to play. So I want to check out of it. I'm going to make a difference, which inherently we know is leadership. Yeah. I want to make a difference, but they don't see it as leadership but they do it on their own and they kind of work right around the things that are happening. And yeah. I think, I think it's fascinating. There's this example. I talk about it. I've talked about it before with some folks is this idea of young people feeling like they have really not a lot of power to create change around gun safety. Okay. And after the Parkland shooting, a group of you know folks from the, the school went up to lobby the Florida legislature and they didn't, they didn't really get very far on advancing the legislation that they wanted. They were, were trying to work within the system, trying to you know, engage in leadership, trying to get these people to make these changes, and it didn't happen. Shortly before that, even before the Parkland shooting, there was a teenager, and I believe he was from Wisconsin. His name is Justin, and he said, you know what, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure how we can prevent school shootings, but I have an idea. And he made this little contraption, like for like $5, I think it was for a school project. And it slides on the inside of a door of a classroom that prevents a shooter from getting in. So if you think that there's an active shooter or like the alarm goes off, you close the door. Instead of pairs up, you just slide this thing under. He said, if we can get these into classrooms, we can prevent school shootings. And this this is just one of hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of Gen Zers saying, I don't trust leaders to make decisions that are in my best interest. Wow. I don't trust the system. I'm going to just go ahead and start doing things that I think are going to make a difference because that's the only power in agency that I have. And so for them, they're doing leadership, but they're not really calling it that. Okay. This is really, really interesting. When they're kind of working outside of these formal lines of authority, so to speak, quote unquote, uh, they're coming up with very, very creative 
creative ways to attack and tackle some of these issues that work around the formal lines of authority. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how they're making a difference. Up until now it was. And, they, and back when we had the 2016 presidential election, you know, the question was, was this generation going to show up and actually have a say in a formal system? And, you know, at that point I had said probably not. And they well, really didn't come out in high numbers. And that's not high numbers compared to older generations because the youngest of voters always turn out at lower rates. But it's compared to other first-time voters that it, you know, over the course of history. It was a yeah. pretty low turnout. Will they show up in 2020? Potentially. They showed up in 2018. So they started to re-engage back in a system that they didn't trust in 2018 because they wanted to have a voice. Yeah. Um, in 2020, will they show up even more? Perhaps, because I think sometimes uh, it's easier to say, I'm going to work around the system. But once you realize how powerful that system is, you realize that you might have to get inside and within the system to make that change. So yeah. I'm going to be curious to track that over the next, well, this election and certainly the next couple of years to see if their notion of creating change involves basically playing within the existing systems as well as working around them. So I think that they're, they have a multiple, you know, tiered approach. And there's so many new resources, whether it's the digital platforms and ways to even be thinking about leadership, you know, whether it's their access to information and access to knowledge of how things work and what's happened. And I mean, it, it, it can at a very early age, I imagine, give someone a, a cynical perspective on, well, why try? What else? What other themes from Gen Z when it comes to leadership kind of stand out for you? You know, in addition to the kind of the word leadership or, you know, this notion of being a leader, I think some of the other things that show up around how the roles that they play in groups. Now, mm. I think this is interesting. We've asked them the types of roles they frequently play. Leader was the, the last one on the list. So uh, actually kind of taking initiative of a situation, kind of stepping up, leading the charge in kind of a more, I guess you would say, stereotypical leader role was something that there fewer of them said that they engaged in. They're much more interested in being the strategist, the thinker, the how do we put this together? How do we create a vision? How do we you know, all work together? Or the relator where they actually try to bring people together. The biggest one and the, most, the, the biggest role and the most frequent role that they play is the doer. Oh, wow. He says, you know, in a group, I just want to, I want to, I want somebody to tell me what to do, give me direction, and then I'll go do it. I don't really want to be in charge of other people. I don't really want to be in charge of the process, but I, wow, I'm a workhorse. I can get it done. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's really kind of an interesting, an interesting finding in, especially in the fact when you start looking at, again, I, I take like a sociology perspective here because I don't think that people drop out of the sky with no context. Most Gen Zers are raised by Gen Xers. Most Gen Zers are raised by Gen Xers, not exclusively, but most of them are. Yeah. Gen Xers are raising their kids to look an awful lot like them. Mm. And, and that's part and parcel for the fact that boomers raised their millennial children to not be, have their childhood experience. Gen X came along and said, I'm, we're going to have really purposeful parenting and we're going to instill those kinds of values that we want, that we believe are important, which are, of course, the values that Gen X mostly holds, this idea of independence, autonomy, cynicism, and, and independence and, and those kinds of things. And so Gen X has backed off a little bit from their Gen Z kids and let them step up and take on roles or have what I call with my daughter, the law of natural consequences yeah. um, in, in some sense, right? as long as it's not too much. Um, yeah. I do remember that when she was 
about three years old, her teachers gave me the feedback that said, when she's at this little preschool, she's very much a leader. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, I work in leadership, and I don't think you're using that word in the way that I want you to use it. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, she goes on the playground, and she bosses everyone around. I'm like, oh, what happens? And I said, well, nobody wants to play with her. Mm. So I told my daughter, I said, hey, listen, you know, if you keep doing that, no one's going to want to play with you. I didn't tell her to stop doing it. Yeah. Well, she kept doing it for a little while. Nobody wanted to play with her. And then she realized, I got to get it together and stop being bossy. And so that's a Gen X parenting style where we say, you got to figure it out a little bit on your own. Yeah. And so what's happening, that's translating into Gen X, Gen Zers looking very much like those hard, hardworking doers that Gen X has always been known for is the determination, the perseverance, the get through it, the independence. And so that's what you're seeing from some of the Gen Zers when it comes to their kind of work ethic and then the roles that they like to play when they're in groups. And that means sometimes deferring to a leader and just stepping up and being that person who does. So what are the, what are the, the year ranges for Gen Z, just for listeners and for me? <laughs> you know, Nobody can agree on them. So sure. let me tell you what they generally are. We, when we've done our studies, we use the dates born 1995 through 2010. Okay. Um, early generation Z researchers use those dates. Those are from Sparks and Honey. Uh, it's a market research firm who did a lot of generational research. A few years ago, Pew came out, Pew Research Center, and said, oh, no, 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 that's 1997 to 2012. And then people got in a tizzy. Um, and then they kind of came back and said, we're not sure. We just are saying that because those are some of our studies. So <laughs> at this point in time, we can probably say that most people, most middle school, high school, college, that's probably our Gen Z population. If you were to look at our dates, that group would be turning 25 this year. Yeah. So those are graduate students. Those are employees in the workforce that married potentially children who knows yeah. so it's kind of an evolving thing where we have as, as young as fifth graders but as old as someone who might be married with a three or four year old well so Corey, you you've done so much work in so many different areas one of them is the the work around leadership competencies i'd love to get the latest on that space where you are there and are you seeing any new things emerge in in that work based on some of this work is anything new bubbling up or is it is it kind of holding steady with, with what you have kind of been studying for, what is it now? Is it almost a decade that you've been doing this work? 12 Seven, eight years. years. 12 years. Yeah, wow. 12, yeah. Wow. The student leadership competencies I, I kind of fell into based on the fact that I was just trying to figure out what I was supposed to be teaching in my leadership program and what I, <laughs> what I should be measuring. So I said, you know, then I had an employee who said, well, before we develop the evaluations, don't we think, don't you think we should come up with like a list of things that students should be learning? And I said, yeah, that sounds good. But how should we ding, make this ding, list? Ding, just, ding. Yeah. <laughs> you can't measure what you don't know. So, oh my, so anyways, um, I said, well, how do we create this list? Do we just sit down and think about things we think? I'm like, I think vision's good. He's like, yeah, no, yeah. no, let's not do that. So we actually went to, in 2008, we actually looked at a series of leadership models, leadership documents and things to consolidate. Basically, we put together like a meta list of everybody's models and things and and came up with a list that we called the competencies, which is just like, again, a macro list of things that were already published. And, you know, I've done a lot of studies and put out a book and a few things just to help people have some tools on that. Uh, But one of the big studies that I did uh, initially, um, which was thanks to uh, Dr. Susan Comavez, who recommended this study uh, a while back. Mm. Um, but I will tell you, it's kind of funny. She, she had recommended one thing, and I, I, we went another direction, which was a lot more work. So I kind of wish we had listened a little bit better. But um, 
he had actually recommended to my, my colleague and I that we take our list of leadership competencies and we go through all the academic accredited programs, their, their accreditation manuals. Yeah. And there's a section in each of them that has learning outcomes and that we actually compare our list to those learning outcomes and see if there's any leadership in there. Yeah. And I, now I'm looking back and I realized that at the point that she recommended it, she said, you should look at some of these manuals. Mm. And what we heard is that you should look at all of these manuals. Yeah. So it took five years to go through them all. And we, I mean, we had Excel spreadsheets and, you know, tagging them and all sorts of things. And we ended up um, publishing a piece in the journal leadership studies back in 2013 about our findings, but, you know, accrediting manuals change. And so in 2019, I decided to sit down with them all again by myself. And instead of spending five years with two people, I spent one year with just me and I went through and just redid the entire analysis. Our leadership competency is part of what higher education programs should be doing. Yeah. And you probably say, well, why accrediting manuals, right? Of all the things that you can do. Well, accrediting manuals are shaped by the professionals in those fields. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have like the nursing field wants people to graduate nurses that are prepared to actually work, right? Yeah. So the accrediting manuals are one of the best ways to look at what is what is expected of workers in those fields. I looked at everything. I mean, you name the field as long as it's accredited, I looked at it. And yeah. um, it was more than 36,000 learning outcomes. Oh my God. And yeah, it, it was a lot. But what I, what I found was of the five most like kind of what we call popular or prevalent competencies that came up in the 2013 study, three of those five came up in the 2019 study. So it, there is some consistency in that. Yeah. Uh, but then there were some changes actually in 2019 ethics just flew right to the top. Really? Why are more programs requiring ethics? Well, you know, there's probably a lot of obvious reasons that we could study about why that is and writing moved down. So I thought that was you know, really interesting. Like you, you don't care that you write but just make some good decisions, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really interesting doing that study and kind of parsing it out. And one of the things too, is being able to look at degree level and realizing that leadership is embedded into so many graduate programs as far as their learning outcomes. And Mm -hmm. when we look at leadership education in a college setting, at least at the co-curricular level, I know that very little happens at the graduate level. It's mostly undergraduate and we don't see as many programs at community colleges. So we see them mostly in four-year institutions. And is that kind of a wake-up call that we need to be looking at leadership development across the degree curriculum, not just across a four-year curriculum. And so it's it's really neat to just kind of look at those nuances and say empirically, here's what's showing up. What do we do with that? Yeah. And what do we do with that? What do you think? What, what's next for us? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think we need to start having some conversations about uh, about programs at the graduate level. I think that that's a really important thing, especially co-curricular programs. You know, as we continue to g- grow um, degree granting programs, we see at the undergraduate level, we see a lot of minors. Yeah. And then at the graduate level, we see a lot of degrees or majors or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, trying to figure out how that kind of parses out. Are there you know, or is leadership not even addressed on a campus? Is there even at least a leadership class that people can take or a leadership program that they can do in addition to their major? I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, here we are trying to, in some sense, convince a group of Gen Zers who are in college that leadership is important, yet we seem to have big pockets of absences of leadership development, Hmm. um, depending on where people are going, especially with the rising price of higher education. And we're seeing, you know, overall declining enrollment at four-year institutions and and increasing enrollment at two-year institutions. And that's not where we're seeing a lot of leadership programs and leadership courses. Should we be focusing more efforts on those? 
so I think it's just kind of a bigger conversation looking at uh, a number of trends at the same time to say, how do we engage, especially our Gen Z folks, in believing that leadership is important yeah. and believing that they have the capacities to go do leadership, even not in a formal position. But we need to be looking at that across various programs, across various levels. Yeah. What was the other one other than ethics skyrocketed up? You said, was there another one that comes to mind that in those three of the five, they kind of entered? Uh, well, yeah, I can tell you what the, the first, the, the three that stayed consistent were verbal communication, evaluation. They actually stayed consistent. And then um, the other ones that were muddied around, actually, those, so it was two that stayed consistent, ethics and writing, writing still stayed towards the top, but um, ethics jumped up to number two. Other ones that were up there were listening, analysis, analysis is like critical thinking, collaboration yeah. and research, being able to find an answer to a question that you have. Yeah. Um, things that didn't make it really high uh, were really around this idea of uh, what I call personal behavior ones, things around initiative, confidence, resiliency, uh, all the things that you study, Scott, which we yeah. need, we need desperately. And they're showing up in, in all sorts of other employee competency lists, uh, you know, like the World Economic Forum and LinkedIn has these great competency lists. So does NACE and uh, Center for Creative Leadership. And they're all talking about particular competencies related to emotional intelligence, yet we're not necessarily seeing that reflected in higher ed learning outcomes, which means that our students even getting this stuff yeah. at all. Well, how about like teaming and collaboration? Is that kind of somewhere down a little bit lower as well? Yeah, collaboration is in the top, it's like in the top 10. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because it's, it's one of the only people-oriented competencies that, ro that rose up. I mean, verbal communication did as well, but a lot of the other ones are, are Writing, um, yeah. strategic or intrapersonal that they yeah. have people thinking about how they're going to individually act maybe as a leader or as someone engaging in leadership, but not necessarily with others. So what does that mean? I mean, the higher education accrediting, the, the learning outcomes aren't the be-all, end-all of what we should be doing, but it's the be-all and end-all of what these programs are being evaluated on. Yeah. That's their yeah. currency. Do yeah. we supplement that currency with things we know that students need? Do we also accentuate that currency by saying, okay, your program needs this. Let me tell you how I can help provide that. Um, so there's a lots of different approaches, but it's probably an important thing to understand. What is it that academic, you know, programs actually are looking for, for leadership? Yeah. Um, that might give us a better chance to figure out at the co-curricular and the curricular level, what kinds of things we might want to be focusing on and how we want to market that to the students on campus. Well, it, it's, I had a really fun conversation with Barbara Kellerman. And of course, you know, her, her mantra right now is that we're professionalizing some of this, that it, the, the, the field needs to be professionalized. I have another conversation with, with Eric Guthy from the Copenhagen Business School, and he says, that's not even possible. It can't happen. But <laughs> it is interesting. I'm writing a paper right now where we looked at the top 25 business schools, their, their mission, vision statements, and they all have leadership except for two. But when you really look at how they've even defined that or they're thinking about that or proposing to actually develop leadership with you know, oftentimes one class in the graduate program, in the MBA, maybe one for, for management-oriented majors as undergrads. It's, I don't know, there's opportunity. There's opportunity. There's a lot mm -hmm. of opportunity to do this better or at least start creating some paradigms where, look, you know, uh, Suzuki method, 
right? If we want to teach someone a, a stringed instrument, that's at least a method and karate's a method and jujitsu's a method, but it's so all over the place that I have great respect for you at least trying to get your hands around what does this even look like? What should we be doing? And, and, and then I had a great conversation with Susan Komovez kind of about some of this of, okay, you know, what, what do we need to scaffold? How do we scaffold this in a meaningful way? So we're not throwing the kitchen sink at people and hoping, you know, a little bit of it sticks. But again, I go back, my mind goes back to karate right now. They scaffold it, right? In a very beautiful way. It's scaffolded. Uh And and same thing with being a pilot or being a surgeon. We're going to start with gallbladders and then we're going to move on to the heart, you know, after about eight years. Uh, Right. Scaffold this. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Do stitches on the orange first. (laughs) Back to the pilot analogy, you know, we're like, and then there's an altitude and then there's this throttle and then you can do this and then there's wings and blah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now go fly. (laughs) Right, right. Sat in a room and talked about it. Now go do it, you know. So there's so much opportunity, so much opportunity. Corey, I am so appreciative of your time today. We're at about 40 minutes. I always close these out by going through a little bit of a lightning round. And uh, is there anything that you're reading or streaming or listening to right now that's really standing out for you? What's, uh, what's piqued your interest? You know what I'm doing right now? I am actually taking the class called the science of happiness through Berkeley. Ah. Their edX class that they take. It's, it's a lot of time. It's like going to probably be 75 hours by the time I'm done. Really? But you get a certification in happiness. And um, it's really interesting to me because I get to teach uh, I get to teach a class on emotional intelligence and I weave that into a lot that I do. Um, yeah. And that's why I'm super respectful of the work that, that you have done and you and Marcy and Paige have done. Um, but this class is really interesting. It's the science of happiness, not the art of happiness. So I'm learning yeah. about some of the biological elements of things when I've learned about the social science elements. So it's actually really kind of an interesting class um, to be taking, but it's also weird to be sort of back in the distance learning classroom and taking, you know, doing homework and being so, prepared. So explain and- edX for listeners real quick, just so they, and, and for me, because I have not explored it. So are you, pay, are you paying for the class? Obviously. Well, it's a, it's considered a MOOC, um, which is a massive online something course. Yeah. And it's, it, I mean, it can have hundreds, if not thousands of people in it and they're free to take. Yeah. So you can take them through, I think, MIT and Berkeley and a few others. edX offers them. And I think there's a couple other platforms. Um, if you want to get the certificate, though, and you want, you want to actually be certified, then you have to like, take all the tests and the quizzes and do the homework. And you pay a very small fee, and then you get a certificate in the end. So I did the nice. fee-based one because I really just want to kind of get into it and learn as much as I can. Yeah. If I recall, there was a, a happiness scientist at the University of Illinois who was fairly famous. but. I don't know. I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting his name, but um, the science of happiness, that's, you're getting into what all kinds of interesting things, personality, genetics, environment, and frontal lobe and neurons and all sorts of things. Denmark, Scandinavia, because they're the happiest (laughs) people and the healthiest people. (laughs) I think I'll end up getting to that point in a further <laughs> chapter. So yeah, right now we're talking about compassion and how compassion yeah. is all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and in gratitude, you have a mindset of gratitude. Yep. Very cool. Yep, absolutely. 
Okay, Corey, thank you so much for being with us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for the good work you do. Keep doing that great work. And uh, we will talk soon. I might see you at ILA, the, the digital version, in a couple of weeks. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Take care. All right, thanks so much for having us. All okay. right. I really enjoy how Corey labels her work through the lens of optimism. I think she said, I'm a generational optimist, and I think that's wonderful. I recall as a Gen Xer back in the 90s, we were labeled as slackers and everyone was depressed and it just wasn't a good situation. And I think millennials have carried some of that mantle as well. And being an optimist about this topic, I think is just wonderful. These are differences. These are differences for preferences. And of course, they're major large themes. And as Corey said, some of the longitudinal work won't be done for decades. But I love her combination of leadership and some themes that she's noticing among the different generations. I think that's important. I think that's critical. And one thing that's going to stick with me is this two-tiered approach that she mentioned, where it'll be interesting to observe. We have individuals who now have the agency to work around the system in certain ways, come up with their own ideas, start a YouTube channel and gain an influence or a Twitter feed and gain influence, or even have some of the resources and capabilities to design their own intervention, the example she shared in the episode but then also bringing some of that creativity to leadership and to within-system leadership, which we also desperately need. So thank you, Corey. Thank you for your work. I think it's important. I think it's critical. And, and of course, you're doing a lot of that work, which is inspirational for many of us who write and speak as well. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.